to just preface this morning again by what I said last week. It's the same again this week. You might feel like you've been drinking from the fire hydrant. Okay? So there's going to be like one or two things in the course of the morning. You go, oh, 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 yes. Grab that. Hold on to it. If you have your mobile device, my sermon notes are in the YouVersion app. If you have the YouVersion Bible app and you go to the uh, menu, the hamburger menu, right? Click events. And then if you have location services enabled on your device, it will, you'll see a Mayus Road Church right off the bat. Click there and you can follow along. If, you, if you're one of those people, you just process better as you're reading, as you're hearing, do that. Feel free to do that. I, I've given up feeling insecure about everybody looking down at their mobile devices during church because I preface with that. So I just assume that you're reading your Bible app. And if you're not, I don't want to know, okay? I'm just going to pretend like you are. I want to take a moment this morning and remind us of why I think this series, this four-week series is so important and why I'm glad that you're here, because I believe that the state of affairs in the American church is, uh, in an overall sense, uh, discouraging. The environment around us is growing uh, steadily more hostile, yet many churches seem to be more committed to becoming like the culture around us than like Jesus. And uh, Jesus tells, uh, tells the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3 that as a typology of a, of a church, that they have a very elevated opinion of themselves and an unrealistic assessment of the reality. And so Jesus says that even though that they think that they're rich, they're, they're a wealthy church compared to the rest of the world, com- compared to the other churches, they're wealthy. And they, they would say to Jesus, we don't need anything, Lord. We've got everything we need. This is what he says about that church. He says, you're actually wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Not the kind of thing you want to hear from Jesus. So they had this awesome worship team. They had the lights. They had killer video production quality. But they lacked the things that mattered most to to the Lord. Uh, philosopher Richard Niebuhr uh, said it this way, uh, we have an increasingly vacuous Christianity. Vacuous is uh, it's the same root as vacuum. It's uh, an emptiness or void. And so Richard Niebuhr said this about modern Christianity in America. He says, a God without wrath bought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. In other words, we've given up all the really important parts of what we believe to accommodate everybody else. And, and, and so not only do we end up suffering from apathy and biblical illiteracy in the church, we're also attacked from without. You know, we're, we're culturally, we become a people like what Isaiah says in chapter five, who call evil good and good evil and who put light for darkness and darkness for light. And then he goes on to say to those people, woe to them who are wise in their own eyes. We haven't stood firmly on the foundation of God's word as the source of truth and his revelation as his people the way that we should. And so my heart is to teach the word of God to God's people, to equip you for good works. What Ephesians says is my job as a pastor is to equip you to do all the good works. Not that I don't get to do good works, but, but that's your job. Ministry is your job, right? I get to equip. And so my charge to you this morning as it is all Sundays is to be Berean. And you're like... You've never charged us with that before. What are you talking about? Acts 17, 11. Uh, It's a really quick in passing verse. You know, Luke is writing the book of Acts and he he says that the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. Because Paul had been at Thessalonia and he'd been teaching them the word of God and the Thessalonians were like, whoa, this is awesome. 
we believe everything Paul's saying. This is from the Lord, which is not bad because it's Paul. But when they went to Berea, something different happened. And Paul began to teach the word of God to the people. And they said, that sounds really good, Paul. I'm gonna go home and read my scrolls from the Old Testament and see whether or not the things you're saying really are true. So I love your delivery. Great, great sermon. I'm gonna go check the Bible, right? And so Luke says, they were more noble-minded. And that's your job. Don't ever, 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 ever take my word for anything that I say here, right? Go to your Bible, read your Bible, make sure that it's true. Several years ago, when we were in campus ministry at the University of Georgia, we did a series uh, called Doctrines to Die For. I had just read the previous summer Fox's Book of Martyrs for the first time, and I was rocked by that book. So we did a series on the Reformation, uh, and, and we talked through the five solas of the Reformation uh, because it, it just occurred to me, this is a big deal. People actually laid down their lives so that we could have these doctrinal truths. And on the night that we talked about sola scriptura, solo is the Latin for only or alone. Uh, solo, we get solo from that, right? And then scriptura sounds a lot like scripture. So scripture alone is our ultimate authority. That's that doctrine. Uh, on the night we were gonna teach on that, I asked a police officer friend of mine in Athens, Georgia, if he would stand by the door and confiscate all the Bibles of all the students coming in. And he could just make up whatever reason he wanted to make up. I didn't care. I just wanted to see how willing our students were to part with their Bible. And all but one, as they came through the door, willingly surrendered the word of God to this police officer for a bogus reason. And so we were worshiping, we sang some worship songs, and then I, and then I had some of my students return their Bibles to everybody in the room and explain what had actually happened that evening. But the point was made, we're far too comfortable in our Christianity, that we would be willing to part with God's word so easily. We're willing to give it up so easily. So this morning I wanna talk about sola scriptura as we're in this series on worldview, a biblical worldview. And, and so we talked last week about what is truth, what is, uh, what can we, can we know things for certain? Of course we can know things for certain because if we say that we can't know things for certain, we're claiming to know something. Did you follow that? You with me, right? And so, so we do know things for certain and we can know truth and truth ultimately is a person and his name is Jesus, right? So that's our foundation and then we build on the foundation this week. So let's talk about sola scriptura which means scripture alone. Let me give you the origin of this doctrine and why it was so desperately needed. The, the, the church has moved, the center of the church has moved over the, the last 2,000 or so years. It, it was centered in Jerusalem in the Middle East and then, it, and then it gravitated over towards the European continent. It was in Turkey, modern day Turkey for a while, and then it moved into greater Europe. And then the church center, the mass of the church kind of moved to the United States. And now the, if, you, if you look around the world, say where is the church kind of rooted, centered, where's the, the critical mass? It's actually China. It's not us, it's China. That's where the center of the church seems to be at this point, and also probably the continent of Africa. Those two places would vie for that, but uh, it's shifted around. And so as it was moving into uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, and the European continent, 
the Roman Catholic Church kind of came about during that time. The church institutionalized and got into relationship with the government under Constantine. There's a long backstory here. I won't bore you with all the details, but uh, suffice it to say that uh, the church took on a position in the culture of Europe as it grew up of being one of prominence, but not just influence prominence, of being like basically a top-down uh, declarative, this is what you must do, this is how you must live. And, and, and what happened in those churches was uh, Latin was the common language when all that started, and then all the Bibles got translated into Latin. And then as the languages of Europe just kind of developed in different places, German and, and Italian and Spanish and English, the, the Bibles in the Roman Catholic churches stayed in Latin. And most of them were chained to the altar because the pages were gilded with gold and they didn't want those stolen, right? And so you didn't have a Bible. Now I have like eight Bibles, right? I don't know how many you have, but imagine not having access to a Bible. And the only Bible you know that exists in your context is chained up in the church and only the priest can read it because it's in a language that you don't know. That's the reality of medieval Europe in the dark ages. And so God sent these uh, reformers because what was happening was the church was saying, yeah, the word's important, but the magisterium and teaching of the church is important, and both of those are authoritative. And the problem is, in physics, two objects cannot occupy the same space at the same time. It doesn't work. It's a, it's a really crazy thing with authorities. It's the same problem. Two authorities cannot hold the same position at the same time. One will always win out over the other. Always. So in the, in the Mormon church, right, it's the Book of Mormon over the Bible, right? They say, oh, we hold those things together. No, you really don't. The Book of Mormon wins, right? And in, in the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval ages and all up and through the Reformation, it was the magisterium of the church because the popes can say ex cathedra, that's a, that's a Latin phrase that means from the, from the chair when they're there with the hat and the whole deal, that whatever they say has the authority of God. They're speaking for God. So now you got two authorities, right? And so sola scriptura, returned the church and tradition to its proper place in the, in the greater scheme of what things are supposed to be. God raised up uh, men prior to the formal reformation like Zwingli and um, Jan Hus in, uh, in, in Bohemia. There was actually a place called Bohemia, you know? It's not just a rhapsody. Um, so it's, it's, so this, these men died, right, defending these doctrines. And then, and then Martin Luther, the most famous reformer, came along and uh, nailed his 95 theses to the, to the door of the castle in Wittenberg. And, uh, and so... so we know, we know the, the, the history of the Reformation. With sola Scriptura, uh, men and women have died for this doctrine so that we could have it, know it, live by it, and so we don't take it lightly. So let me, let me give you some clarification. Let me tell you what sola Scriptura is not. Sola Scriptura does not mean all truth is contained in the Bible. Okay? The Bible has little or nothing to say about DNA structure, microbiology, the rules of Chinese grammar, rocket science. It's not containing all truth, but scripture does tell us, however, how we are to approach every category of life, including science, including recreation, including relationships. So in all matters of faith and practice and the way that we live our lives as Christ followers, the word of God is our supreme authority, 
Does that make sense? So secondly, sola scriptura does not mean that every verse in the Bible is equally clear to everybody that reads the Bible. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, if you've not, if you've not received Christ, well, well, Scripture says that the things of God are only understood by the Spirit of God. So that's a, that's a problem right there. But, but Scripture, like you're on a growth continuum, right? When you were born, you were tiny. If you've been here this morning for prayer, you'd have seen some tiny people crawling around on the floor, right? They don't even read yet, but they will. And later, they may read great works, and they may write great works, but that's a continuum. You don't start there. You don't come out of the womb and go, hand me a pen, right? You grow in your understanding. And so we do in Christ. And so not all scripture is equally clear to everybody that reads every scripture, but we should still read it, and we should still study it, and we need each other, and we need the Holy Spirit. So, so it doesn't mean that Scripture is the only authority that exists. Tradition can be helpful. Uh, the, the authority of the church is a real thing, but uh, the church's authority comes under the Scripture, right? So all these are subjected to the Word of God. So sola scriptura means that the Scriptures are our only ultimate and infallible authority for faith and practice. Faith and practice. I'll explain infallible in just a minute, Okay. All other authorities are subordinate to the scriptures and are fallible. That means they can make mistakes. I don't know if this may be news to you. I can make mistakes. I hope that's not earth shattering for anybody this morning. As some of you guys are starting to tear up. I, I can make mistakes. Right? Ask my wife, ask my kids. They'll tell you plainly. I make mistakes. But so the Westminster Confession of Faith defines sola scriptura this way. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence can be deduced from scripture unto which, speaking of the scriptures, nothing is to be added at any time, whether by new revelations or the spirit or the traditions of men. We don't get to add to the Bible. We don't get to take away from the Bible. The Bible's our authority. So let me, let me give you a couple of apologetics from the word of God itself. Apologia is the word um, to give a response, to give an answer. To, we get the word apologize, which is kind of a, a mistranslation in one sense. It's answering why. It's answering why you have this hope in you. And so let me give you a couple of things from scripture here to establish this doctrine. And then I'm gonna give you a vocabulary list this morning. I know you're super excited about having a vocabulary list. Um, In Deuteronomy 31, you'll see this phrase, and you'll see it all through the Old Testament, and you'll see it all through the New Testament, especially when Jesus quotes the Old Testament. It is written. It is written. It's a phrase all throughout the scripture. So in Deuteronomy 31, it says, Moses wrote down the law. And Moses instructed the people by writing down the law and then ordering that it be read to them. We just finished Nehemiah a couple of weeks ago and we saw that happen when Ezra stood and read the law of Moses to the people of God, right? It is written. It says they read it to them so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of the law. It's Deuteronomy 31, 9, and 12. Moses would say, uh, just a few chapters, uh, well, actually in the very next chapter, Deuteronomy 32, he says, take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you can command your children to obey carefully all the words of the law. They're not just idle words for you. They're your life. 
So listen to the, here are the clear elements in these passages. Deuteronomy 31 and 32, we see that the word of God, which Moses spoke, that God spoke to Moses was written down. We see that the people can and must learn the word of God and they must listen to it and learn it. And then number three, in this word, they find life. It's a source of life. And so the function of the prophets and the priests who came after that was not to add to the law, but to clarify the law. They, they came to apply it to the people who were sinfully indifferent about what God had already said through Moses. And then they came to speak prophetically about the Christ who was to come. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, we see Peter talking about this in, in both of his letters, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. <coughs> he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched diligently and they inquired carefully. They were inquiring what person or what time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, listen to this, they were not serving themselves. God said, you can search this out, but it's not for you. He says, they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. And so, there, are, there are angelic beings all around us in the unseen that are going, this is wild. Gospel? You send in the son to die for the sins of humanity? Those flesh bags? Really? That's crazy. They just go, this is amazing. When you get to 2 Peter 1, he says this, know this, that first of all, no prophecy of scripture ever came about from someone's inter their own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Stop. No prophecy, no word of scripture was ever produced by the will of man. They're, these are not man's best thoughts about God. He says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the authority is not in our interpretation of the word, but in the word itself. We allow the word to interpret the word. We read every scripture in the light of every scripture. And Paul would say to Timothy, I love this passage, you're gonna, you're gonna probably recognize it. Second Timothy three, verse 10 to 17. Paul says this, he tells Timothy, the young pastor, he says, you however, you followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and my persecutions and sufferings and all that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions that I endured, yet from all of them the Lord has rescued me. He says, indeed, I love this promise, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Isn't that a great promise? So exciting. He says, but... While evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So you're going to be persecuted for wanting to walk uprightly in righteousness in Christ Jesus. And people who are imposters, they'll go from bad to worse, right? But as for you, listen to this, verse 14. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the Talgrafe, the, the sacred writings, the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, key verse for us, look at verse 16. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, you look at verses 10 to 14, and you go, this is all about this oral tradition that Timothy had learned from growing up. You're, you're familiar with this, and you've, you've read the sacred writings. You've read the Old Covenant. You've read Moses. And so you know that this is, this is important and that this is from the Lord. And there's verse 15 and 16 and 17 focus on the written scriptures, which are sufficient. They're sufficient for what? Well, to teach us, to correct us and reprove us, to train us in righteousness. They lead us to salvation. God has given us his word. And so what, what things are the salvation, the scripture sufficient to do? We, we say salvation, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, equipping and maturing. Uh, I don't know that there's anything in the Christian life that falls outside of those categories. We need it every day from the time we come to Jesus to the time we see Jesus, we need his word every day. Day. It is life. Think about, uh, just to drive this home on this issue, the scriptures are authority. I, I love this example. Think about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, right? Three temptations. He'd fasted for 40 days and nights. He's weakened. He's in this place where he's communing with, the, with God, his father, but he's in a weakened state physically, and the enemy comes in to tempt him. And there's three temptations. How does Jesus respond to every temptation? He says, it is written it is written he didn't appeal to oral tradition he never appeals to the rabbis or the sanhedrin he he never even appeals to his own divinity he says it is written he's appealing to the authority of scripture every time he's tempted that's important for us if it's good enough for the son of god it's good enough for me I need to be appealing to scripture. And if I'm gonna appeal to scripture, I'm feeling tempted, I kinda need to know what it says. Yeah, up and down means yes. Yes, I need to read it. I need to get it in my heart. So the Bible's our framework, our grid, and our authority. First uh, uh, John 4, uh, verse one says, test the spirits. Test the spirits. Uh, people will come to you. Different uh, entities may try to speak to you. I've never had that happen, but uh, I know other people who have, and, and we gotta be able to test these things to see whether or not they're really from God. Or people will say to you, God told me to tell you to do this. Well, well, is that really what God said? How do we know? Well, we go back to the Bible. So you've gotta have an objective standard of what God said. That's our grid. If we don't have an objective standard of what God has said, we don't have any way to do what 1 John 4, 1 says to do because it's just our subjective experience. We've gotta be able to test the spirit. So once you've established this reality that God's word and his revelation to man is our authority, now we can build on that foundation and talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit about biblical terminology. Now, I grew up in church and I heard a lot of these words for a long time and so I learned to say the words but I had no idea what they meant. Not that any of you are, are, uh, would ever do that, would fake people out like I did, but I think, you know, don't we have that kind of tendency in church? Like, oh yeah, hermeneutics. Oh, yes, uh, inspiration, uh, infallibility. We just say those things and there's like, I don't, I don't actually know what that means, right? But I'm gonna fake it till I make it. So let me, let me give you just a short vocabulary list this morning so we can understand this doctrine a little bit better. Walk you through some vocabulary uh, related to the word of God. First word, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the philosophy or study of how to correctly interpret the Bible. Say, are you practicing good hermeneutics? 
Are you reading every scripture in the light of other scriptures? And I think the most overlooked hermeneutical principle in the church today is John 5, 39. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says to them, you guys search the scriptures daily because you think that in them you have life, but you don't realize that's these that speak about me. Jesus is telling us that everything in the Bible is ultimately about him. Even the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament ultimately points us to Jesus. Think about if, if all we had was the Old Testament, we'd have this incomplete thing where all these ceremonies never find their fulfillment and all these prophecies never find their answer and it just leaves you hanging. And Jesus is saying, all that's about me. I'm the fulfillment of all the old covenant, right? In fact, the the New Testament writers would say the same thing. Paul in Colossians 2 says, don't let anybody pass judgment on you in question to food or drink or regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbaths and having to attend that and having to be here and having to only eat this to be holy, right? He said, don't let people pass judgment on you regarding that. Those things are all just a shadow of the things that were to come. But the substance is Christ. He says, we've been living in the shadow shadow of Jesus in the old covenant but that's all like now we have the thing that's casting the shadow we have the substance the reality of Jesus right Uh, the writer of Hebrews would say something very similar in Hebrews 8 he says all the things in the old covenant serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things for when Moses was going to build the the tabernacle erect the tent of the tabernacle he was instructed by God saying and so God said see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain so when Moses went up on the mountain uh, and and God is there in fire and in cloud and, and Moses has a vision he sees heaven there's a real tabernacle there and so God says I want you to make the tabernacle on earth to reflect the reality that's in heaven there's a, there's a real reality that is Jesus, and then, and then here's, here's the thing that points people to that, right? Make this, make it in that image. And this is why redemption's the theme of the Bible, because it's all about Jesus. I don't, I don't think it's inherently bad when churches, you know, talk about uh, how, to, you know, how to be a good business person. They have a seminar on how to have great relationships, find the perfect mate, things like that, but we don't send missionaries to China to tell people those things. We send people on missions around the world to tell people about Jesus. It's about Jesus. We send them with the gospel, and the gospel is what we need in this generation and in this culture more than ever before. So hermeneutics, here's your next vocabulary word. Ready? Revelation. Not the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Actually, the the name of the book of the Bible is a revelation of Jesus Christ. We just call it revelation. And it's not revelations. Please don't do that. <laughs> Some of you will do it to me just to aggravate me. I probably should have said it. It's revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus, right? A revelation, the word revelation means objective disclosure of truth by God. God is the one revealing, and it is objective truth, right? Because God can't lie. And whatever he says is true. Objective disclosure of truth by God. The Bible is God's truth made known to man. It is absolute truth. This is especially true when it concerns the nature and character of God himself. We call that theology proper. We talk about God's nature. It's especially true when it concerns the nature of man. We call that anthropology. And it's true when it concerns the universe, the cosmology of the universe, right? And there are three main ways that God's revealed himself. This is not on the screen, but I'll give this to you quickly. Three ways, creation, Jesus, the Bible. 
main ways. Creation, Jesus, the Bible. Psalm 19, Romans 1. God has made himself known through that which has been made so that men are without excuse. You ever stand at the beach at sunset and just go, wow, this didn't just happen. Stand at the base of an immense waterfall and just be in awe. Have those moments I call the haunting moments where you're just out in creation and you just go, this is amazing. You just lose yourself in that moment speaks to the reality of a transcendent God who made it all. It's not just random collision of molecules plus chance plus time. Didn't give us beauty and order. Didn't happen that way. He's created. He's revealed himself through Jesus, the son, the living word. We know John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's revealed himself through Jesus. He's revealed himself through the Bible, the written word. He's told us what he wants us to know about him. Now, let me just say this. The Bible is not exhaustive, right? We will be discovering things about God for all eternity in his presence. We'll need glorified bodies to do that. But he's told us everything that he wants us to know about him in this life, in his word. And it's more than we can, it's more than we can handle. And it's great. You're not gonna exhaust the Bible, okay? If you think, hey, I've read it a couple of times, I know that stuff, come see me. Let's have a chat. Um, Here's, here's another vocabulary word this morning. I hope this is helpful to you guys. I geek out on this stuff, maybe you don't, but um, progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. This is God disclosing his truths in a gradual and deliberate manner. God doesn't give us everything at once. The Bible wasn't written in a single day. Um, in, in Hebrews 1, we're told that God spoke in various times and in various ways through his prophets, through his people, right? And it was not his purpose to reveal all truth concerning any one doctrine at any one point in time. A seed is only a little seed, but it contains everything that's needed to make a huge tree, right? God's purpose is not in not giving everything at once was so that the message would be dispersed. Now, think about this. If you're at war and you have an enemy and you want to get a message to your people, you don't just send it over one channel or the whole message as one total thing over one one avenue, right? Because what you anticipate is that your enemy wants to block and jam the message. If you're smart and you're at war and you want to get a message to your people, you break the message up into parts and you send it over the available bandwidth so that on the other end as they receive the pieces, they put it back together and then they have the whole. Does that make sense? So in anticipation of hostile jamming from our enemy, I think God very deliberately gave us a book that was coming through uh, several different authors, over 40 different authors over a period of about 5,000, no, 1,500, I say five, there was a five there. I saw the five. 1,500 years, right, or so. Different walks of life, different occupations, different life experiences, and all of that coming to give us a comprehensive whole on this person of Jesus. And so that, that's pieced together gives us a whole message. That's what the Bible is. Let me give you an example of progressive revelation, okay? In Genesis 3.15, we get this little snippet of a prophecy uh, when, when the curse is happening there. Adam and Eve have sinned. And God says to, to Eve, he says, listen, your, uh, his seed, the serpent's seed, a reference to Satan, is going to strike his heel. He's going to wound him. But your seed is going to crush his head. That's interesting because biologically that doesn't work because the seed is in the man, not the woman. So it's kind of an allusion to a virgin birth there. 
You see that in the text. So in Genesis 3, you go, okay, but that's pretty obscure. So we just know that whoever this person is that's coming from Eve's lineage, Adam's lineage, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, But in Genesis 12, you read a little further and you find out Messiah's going to come from Abraham's family. Okay, that narrows it down a little bit. And then you read on in Genesis. You get to chapter 49, and you find out in, in chapter 49, God's uh, Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. So it's narrowed down even more. So it's getting clearer as the text goes on. You see this? And you get to Isaiah 7, and, and there's a prophecy about the Messiah being born of a virgin, which is confirmation of what's hinted at in Genesis 3. And then by the time you get to Micah 5, 2, we know that Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So, so it gets clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer, right, as the, as the revelation comes. You can see the unfolding of the revelation concerning Messiah's first coming, and that's how progressive revelation works. Uh, here's another one, inspiration. Inspiration. Some of you are like, I wrote a song this week, I felt really inspired. Not the same thing. Not the same thing, okay? We've kind of taken inspiration to mean like inspiration happened to me. I was inspired. Uh, inspiration deals with the text, not the people, not the human authors. They were not inspired. The text is inspired, okay? Literally, it means God breathed. Inspirato in the Latin means to breathe. When you inspire, uh, inspiration, and they put you on a ventilator to help you ventilate. It's all about the the. I almost said perspiration, that's sweating. It's, it's breathing, okay? Um, it doesn't mean that God destroyed or overpowered the personalities of human authors. If you have it in your mind that Paul and Peter and all these guys, their eyes roll back in their heads and they're just writing and they're not controlling themselves, that's occultism. That's not what happened, okay? God preserved his word through the personalities of the human authors. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, an analogy that will help you. When you go to great museums of the world and you stand there, you go to the, the Louvre in, in France, and I they never say the word, and I, and I don't really like French anyway, so I don't try to say it right um, because I just feel like I'm holding my nose, the Louvre, right? If you went there, if you went there, I don't like French, by the way. Did I mention that? Um, if you go there, you'll see Michelangelo's famous sculpture, David. And you stand there and look at this and go, that's one chunk of rock that this dude sculpted. And you would stand there and you say, that's, man, all praise to the chisels who did that. What? You think that's ridiculous? You'd be right. You say, wow, the sculptor Michelangelo's an amazing artist. If you got really close, you could begin to see just the little marks of the chisels and that the tiny, the, the fine chisels around the eyes leave distinctive marks and the big chisels, if you can imagine back when he first got the chunk of granite and he started with the big chisel and the mallet, he's taking out big chunks, that would leave different marks in the little chisels and they each make their fine imprint on the sculpture but it's not the chisels that sculpt. It's not even the mallet in the hand of the sculptor. It's the sculptor himself who is God. When we talk about the word of God, the human authors are just the chisels. We don't say, praise the chisels. In fact, that's, that's, what, that's what Peter was talking about. And, and so let me just give you a couple of scriptures here. The source of the information is God. Um, we, we just saw 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God. But listen to 2 Peter 1 again. Uh, Peter says, we have a more prophetic word. This is 2 Peter 1.19. It was just more fully confirmed. 
to which you would do well to pay attention like a lamp shining in a dark place until the, until the morning dawns, the day, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, Peter says, that no prophecy of scripture came from someone's own interpretation, for prophecy was never produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the chisel in the hand of the sculptor being hit by the mallet. The mallet is the Holy Spirit. That's the thing that's driving these men to write these words, but they're making their own indelible imprint in the rock, as it were, right? The chisels make their mark, but it's God who's the sculptor. It's this beautiful picture of this reality. And so it wasn't Moses' private interpretation of God's words or Isaiah's or Jeremiah's or Peter's. They wrote what God wanted them to write. And so they were moved by the Spirit to to record God's words. So the revelation did not come from the will of man, but from the Spirit of God. That's inspiration. Here's another I word. We'll move more quickly here. Inerrancy. Inerrancy. There are no errors in the text of Scripture concerning its historical or scientific accuracy. This applies to the original manuscripts only. Original manuscripts only. Your English translation has translation errors. They are minuscule. They're tiny. I'll explain that in a moment. Don't freak out. Inerrancy. King James Bible published, published in 1611. There's a first authorized English translation. I love the King James because we know where all the translation errors are. We've had it long enough that we found them all. Right? So if you get in a debate with the KJV, only person who say, that's great. Let me show you where the errors are in the KJV. Okay? Um, has a few dozen, few dozen translation errors. Cannot be called inerrant but the Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts. The errors are in our translation process, not in the words that God gave the human authors. And our translation process has gotten better and better and better and better because our understanding of Hebrew and Koine Greek only gets better. And we have more source material now that's closer to the original dates of the authors than we ever had before, especially since Qumran and that discovery there near the Dead Sea. We have more information to translate from. So our translations are better. They're not worse. It's not the telephone game, right? They said, God gave this stuff to Peter, and then this person translated Peter, and this person translated the translation of the translation of the translation. That's not how it works. We're going back to the original sources and and translating from them. And so this is, can we trust our English Bible that we read today? Yes, we can. And the, the answer is infallibility. This is the next word. Infallibility means that God's word cannot be broken. He keeps it whole. He does that. It's completely trustworthy. Completely trustworthy. In areas, even in areas like astronomy or where it records genealogies of people that lived thousands of years ago. Um, Let me give you an example of infallibility. Uh, If you look up at the night sky and you see constellations, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, right? To us, it looks like a two-dimensional picture on a black sheet of paper. We see the dots, and we see them on an XY axis in relationship to each other, left to right, up and down, right? But what we can't see with our eye is the depth of field. We can't see how far away they are from us. We just see them in relationship to each other sideways. Does that make sense? You follow me? So every constellation you look at, this star in Ursa Major might only be 10 million light years away, but the one next to it, just just the next star over, is 150 million light years away. But we can't see that distinction with our eyes. We only see them in relationship to each other. There are two exceptions, two constellations that we know of that actually are gravitationally bound to one another. Orion the belt of Orion, and the Pleiades, 
which is close in the sky. It's funny because in Job 38, 31, you know, Job's dressing down, he's getting a dressing down from God because he wants answers and God says, you really don't deserve them, uh, but I'll talk to you anyway. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the world? Right? And one of the things he says to him, he says, can you loosen the belt of Orion or, or, or undo the cord of the Pleiades? And you go, why is that in the Bible? Because God was hinting at us at what we've only discovered in the last 75 years or so, that those are the only two constellations we know of that are actually gravitationally bound to one another. So there's just all those kind of things in the Bible that speak to his foreknowledge that we only have just discovered in the last 100, 150 years in our understanding of science. It's crazy. But to understand the difference between inerrancy and infallibility, think of the Boeing 777. Comes out of the factory. Inerrancy means there are no mistakes down to the last label, the last sticker in the bathroom, in the lav. Everything is perfect. There are no mistakes. Infallibility means that the structural integrity of the plane is, is, is great, but the sticker in the bathroom that says flush here might be turned sideways. Does that impugn or, or exclude the plane from operating properly or staying together midair? Absolutely not. It's just the sticker's tilted sideways. That's infallibility, right? It's the integrity of the whole is intact. It's not gonna keep the plane from flying safely. It may, may keep some dunderhead from flushing the toilet, but it's not gonna keep the plane from flying. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm gonna wrap us up here in just a second. Uh, you can do too much of this, and people are just like, I'm checking out, I'm checking out, I can't handle it. Um, just a couple, one more, illumination. Illumination is the process by which the Holy Spirit brings understanding to the reader of the Bible. Um, contrast that with revelation, which is objective. Illumination is more subjective in nature because it deals with you personally. The Holy Spirit is applying his word to your life. It doesn't change the meaning of the text, but he's applying it to your situation. And you'll find in different seasons of your life, you'll read the same verse and go, man, I never saw that before. That's interesting because the Holy Spirit's applying it to your life and your circumstance. It doesn't change the truth of the Bible, it just means the Spirit's applying those truths in different ways to different people in different seasons of your life, okay? So uh, Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person can't accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to that person, he's not able to understand because only, they're only discerned spiritually. Um, the time of revelation is done, let me just make that point, uh, Jude verse three. Jude's one chapter book right before Revelation and in Jude, uh, he's writing, he says, beloved, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write to you about that, but I couldn't because I had to write to you to appeal to you to contend for the faith and then he adds this phrase about our faith in Christ that was delivered once for all to the saints. It is finished. It is a completed work. There are new, new, no new revelations being given. Um, when people say, God, God revealed this to me, what they're often saying, what they mean is God illuminated truth to them about some situation in their life, which is fine. Um, the, if you want to talk to me uh, this week about the gift of prophecy and the spiritual gifts, the gift of prophecy is not, when somebody says, I have a word from the Lord for you, it is not on the same level with scripture, okay? It is an application of God's word and his truth to your life. And if somebody's coming into the church, into this church, we'll just shoot them quick. It says, man, I got God's given me new revelation that is authorita as authoritative as the Bible. I'm like, see ya, bye. 
not here. We're not doing that. Ain't doing it. Um, so when people say, yeah, God revealed to me, they're, they're really talking about illumination most of the time. And, and God has revealed everything that he wants us to know about him in this world. That doesn't mean that he's revealed everything about himself. Again, we'll discover more about him in the world to come, but we're gonna need new bodies to do it. So let me just summarize this morning, okay? Revelation deals with the material you have in your Bible. It's the material. Inspiration deals with the source of the material. Where did it come from? It came from God. Inerrancy deals with the recording of the material. Did the, did the prophets and apostles record the words of God accurately? The answer is yes. Infallibility deals with the integrity of the material. Does it, does it hold together? Does it, still, does it still work? Yes. Illumination deals with our understanding of that material as the Holy Spirit applies it. And then, and then out, out of all of that, we, we come to the authority of the power and the command of the Bible over our lives as followers of Jesus. Um, and I realize in my notes right now that I have this really cool little four minute video clip that I didn't put in the computer uh, I will post it on the Facebook page this week but it is this I want you to watch it when I post it, it, it like go home I probably won't do it today because I got a busy afternoon but there's this tribe in Indonesia and missionaries had come to them years ago with the gospel. And, and they had been working the last seven or so years. Well, they had to build a language for the people because they didn't have a written language. They had a, they had a you know, oral tradition, but they didn't have a written language. So they built a written language for these people and then finally got a Bible translated into their language. And so this, vill- this whole village, like hundreds and hundreds of people come down as this plain lands and, and they've got this crate and it's full of Bibles in their language and they are in tears. They're in tears and they're rejoicing and they're praying. And you watch the video and if you can do it without crying, let me know because you're not human. Okay? You're something else. Watch this video and just go, oh my gosh. They are so excited to have the word of God for the very first time. And if we could just recapture just a little sliver of that passion for the eight Bibles we have gathering dust on our shelves. If we could just capture some of that. Then we would read the words of Jesus in Matthew 28 and we'd have a new passion when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you always until the ending of the age. We jokingly, some some pastor friends of mine jokingly call verse 20 the great omission instead of the great commission because it seems to be something that a lot of churches leave out. To obey the Great Commission requires that we teach the Bible. And if we're gonna teach people to obey Jesus' commands, where else are we gonna find those commands but the Bible? And if we're not doing that, listen, church, if we're not doing that, if you're not doing that, if you're not replicating yourself into the lives of others and teaching people to obey, obey Jesus, we're just shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. They make it look pretty. Had a great production quality. We'd be like the church at Laodicea. But the thing's going down. It's sinking fast. I don't want to be the pastor. And I don't want any of you to be the church leader who has to stand before Jesus and answer as to why we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. And the bottom line is we have to study, know, and teach the Word of God. Is it your authority? Is it your final authority? Who or what is your final authority? Is it the government? Is it the church? Is it tradition? Is it yourself? Or is it the Word of God? You're called to be Berean. 
Don't take my word for these things. Go home and study this week. Then if you find something, you go, I don't, I don't think this is right. Let me know. Let's talk about it, okay? Sola Scriptura means that the Bible is your ultimate authority. And if Jesus has authority over the church and over my life and over your life, so does this word. So does this word. Let's pray. Father, would you apply these truths to our hearts today? It's a lot to take in. And I pray that we would be good students of your word. We would be apt to read it. We would not just read it. We would meditate on it. We would think on it and find ways to keep it in front of us all day long. It's what, it's what Deuteronomy 6 is about. When we're training our kids, it's just bind it up and put it on your forehead. Not, not literally, but, uh, but, but to keep it in front of you always, to keep it before you. Write it on your shower wall with a Sharpie. <laughs> Write it on your bathroom mirror with a Sharpie. Listen to it in your mobile device. You plug it into your car stereo as you commute. Keep it in front of you. Lord, would you help us to do that? We want to be a people saturated with your word because in your word we find life. We thank you for these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.